If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 once again. Corinthians chapter 5, let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful. You are so good to us, and we pray, O Lord, that as we continue uh, to work our way through 2 Corinthians, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will give us understanding, that you will give us insight, that you will remind us, Father, of truths that we already know, but may need to be emphasized in our thinking, that, Father, you would continue to shape us to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, both inwardly and outwardly, that, Father, we may be filled with your wisdom and your joy. Now, Father, our life will reflect the fact that we believe in you, that we're committed to you, and that you have transformed us and regenerated us. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So before we go on to the verses that we're going to look at today, a quick review on verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, basically, if you are a believer, that's another way to speak of all Christians, we are in Christ, we have this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. It is not just some passing thing. It's not just some uh, where, where there's kind of this distance between us and we're just kind of in a group, but there is this relationship that we have with God himself. And it tells us here that if we are in Christ, if you are a believer, you are a new creation. That doesn't mean that you are reformed. It doesn't mean that you are rehabilitated. It is more than that. You are a new creation. You are someone who was completely different. Before, you were someone who was dead to God. You were dead spiritually. Now you are alive to God. You are alive spiritually. You are completely and 100% a new person. As a result of that, that should affect us very deeply. I do believe that that personally should challenge everything that we think when it comes to the way that we view ourselves in the world. In other words, if you, whatever difficulties you had before, whatever reasons were given for why you are the way you are, for why you feel the way you feel, that's all different. It's all different. You are no longer the product of your poor upbringing if you had a poor upbringing. May it affect you? A little. But you now have greater resources to be able to deal with it and to overcome. If you've been addicted to any kind of a substance, you are no longer that person. You are now a new creature in Christ. You may at times still think about the struggles that you had before. There may be some temptation that comes away because we are still in the flesh and there is a weakness that is there, but you're not the same person. You no longer have to give in to anything. You may choose to give in and you're going to reap the repercussions of that, but you no longer have to do so because you are a new person. You are now rightly related to God. And he tells us here that the old has passed away. And how did all that happen? Well, he tells us, verse 18, all this is from God. It is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon others. It is from God himself. How did God do that? God did that through Christ. 
because we are reconciled to God through him. We are reconciled to himself. Why? Because of what he did on the cross for us. And as a result of that, all of us then have this new ministry. All the things that God gives us, we have this responsibility. We have a ministry of reconciliation. What does he mean by that? He tells you in verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Man is at enmity with God. God seeks to reconcile the world to himself. And we have that ministry. And when he mentions about God, not, about God reconciling the world to himself, he gets more specific and says he is not counting their trespasses against them. This is another way to make sure we understand that God wants to reconcile the entire world because trespass here is a word that is often used for those who are willfully doing wrong, willfully rebelling. So this is not those who've just kind of, you know, lost their way, who are really trying to do good and they had a few mistakes. No, this includes even the hardcore individual who hates God. This is the individual who's committed murder. This is the individual who's committed theft. This is the one who's committed adultery. Or this would include the one who's committed adultery in their heart, committed murder in their heart. These are individuals who have willfully, knowing it was wrong, have done wrong things against others and against God. These are the ones that God is reconciling to himself. And how does he do so? He doesn't count their sins against them. He doesn't just do that arbitrarily. We need to make, remember all that he's been telling us and that God has done that by attributing that then to Jesus and then Jesus was punished for that. And then he says he has entrusted this incredible message to us. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And so then he continues with the same thought and he wants to develop, develop it a little further and so he says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that, it, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Criswell says this, a new, as a new creation of God, believers have a new calling as ambassadors of Christ. Our assignment is to preach the message of reconciliation and to perform the ministry of reconciliation. Now let me pause there and let me remind you that often when we see the word preach, it's easy for us to think that's what Bob is supposed to do. Bob does the preaching. Well, I do preach, I'm not the only one. But normally or often, the word preach simply means to declare. And the reason why we sometimes are comfortable with the word preach being focused on the preacher, because it lets us off the hook. But you're not left off the hook. This is your responsibility and my responsibility. We are all to preach, or we are all to declare what Christ has done. We are to make a declaration. We are to speak this message forth. So therefore, the declaration of the message is performing the ministry of reconciliation. Their task is to be carried out with a sense of urgency as we implore or beseech or beg men to be reconciled to God. The word ambassadors that's used here uh, by Paul is a verb which means to be an elder, to be 
uh, an ambassador or to work as an ambassador. The basic idea is to function as a representative of a ruling authority. So every single individual who is in Christ, every individual who is a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, we are an ambassador. We are those who represent the ruling authority, which is God himself. In ancient times, and ambassadors, they were usually older, they were experienced men. To be an ambassador in the, in the ancient world, whether it was Greek, Roman, or Jewish, uh, just like it is in modern times, really involved three things, or three main things. Number one, there was a commissioning for a special assignment. And we've been commissioned by God for a special assignment. It is this singular message that we are to declare. The second thing is, is they represent the sender. You've heard people use, use phrases such as, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. The idea is that we represent Christ. What we do, we do what we do because we are Christians, because we represent him. We want others to speak well of him because we do the things that we do. The idea is not to bring attention on ourselves. We're not doing good things to others because we want to be great in their eyes. We do so because of Christ. We represent him. And thirdly, we exercise the authority of the sender. Now, don't get carried away with that, saying, oh, good, that means I get to be the boss, because you're not the boss. So the idea would be this. So uh, when it comes, for example, when it comes to my authority, I then would not tell John, John, you need to sell your car and go buy another one from someone else. I don't have the authority to do that. But let's say that John has, for whatever reason, has decided to start solving his problems by being involved in some substance, drugs or alcohol. If I then tell him, John, I'm telling you, you must stop. That's not me. That's what God says. I, whatever command I give him, I can only give him the commands that we find in Scripture. So I do have the authority to say that to him. If he disobeys me, he's disobeying God. Not that I'm God, but I'm telling him what God has said. I can show him where God has said that. So the idea is, is that you have an authority when you tell an individual the gospel. And maybe that's a better term than share, but it's okay to say share. But when we, when we give someone the gospel, we are telling them the truth. You are telling them that they are lost and they need Jesus Christ. You're telling them they need to be reconciled to God. That is the truth. They may think or they may say, well, you don't know me. And maybe you don't know them that well, but you know the truth about them. Because the Bible tells us that all men are lost and are in need of Christ. So you have the authority to tell them these things. They may not like that. Tough. That's just the way that it is. Now, it doesn't mean you try to be obnoxious on purpose. But the bottom line is, is there is an authority in that message. We are speaking for God. Of course, that carries a great deal of responsibility. And I'll say this again later. Uh, but the idea is, is that we are giving the message that God has given. You and I don't have a right to alter that. We don't alter the message. We may do our best to explain it more thoroughly. But we don't change what it is. We don't try to even make it more palatable. Right? Where it's easier for them to swallow. I still want to be truthful. Again, I may give it to them in parts, and I may try to find a lot of ways to explain it to them so they really grasp what the message is. But I'm not trying to make it easier for them to swallow, just easier for them to understand. 
in the, in the ancient world, it is universally uh, expected that an ambassador, whatever his message was, no matter how delicate or risky his message was or mission, he would be treated with respect and dignity, accorded the appropriate hospitality, and guaranteed a safe exit. Didn't always happen, but that was, the, that was what was expected. To disregard or insult the envoy was to disregard or insult the sender. So again, the idea is that if you are disrespected or if you are mistreated when we carry the message of Christ, they are mistreating Christ. They have to answer to God for that. John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So again, the idea here is that I'm not trying to make the world hate me. I'm not trying to live my life in an obnoxious way to where I kind of, you know, they kind of, I, I, my personality grates on them. But no matter how kind I am and gracious I am in, in explaining the message of Christ, being a Christian, living as a Christian, and expressing this message, do not be surprised if the world hates you. We're given that information by Christ because they hated him. Who did Christ harm when he was on earth? No one. All would agree that he was kind and gentle, that he was a man who spoke the truth. Remember that when he was going through the various trials at the end of his life, when he was on trial before various individuals, that they couldn't even find two people to agree on any kind of a charge against him. I mean, clearly they were, trying, they were making things up, but they couldn't even get two people to agree out of, out of the thousands that they had contact with. Jesus did nothing in secret, and yet they couldn't find anything against him. They purposely set traps so that if he said even one single word that was wrong, they would be able to attack him. They couldn't do it. They had to make it up. Kind of like how, you know, we see that today in, in, in um, very many social circles on social media, whether it's dealing with politics or not, where an individual may have said something several years ago, and then we take it out of context and say, see, they're no good. Or they hate this. Or it's just the idea is to make up anything to find even one word to turn against them. That's what they were doing against Christ, and we should expect the same to us. In Matthew chapter 10, and verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, that is not permission for us to hold a vendetta against our parents or our children. The idea is not to try and agitate them and go out against them. But what he is telling us here is that the main concern of Christ is not to bring peace into your life and my life. It is to bring the forgiveness of sins. It is to reconcile us to God. And as that is being done, this is going to be taking place. There will be families will turn on each other. And we see that happening, we have heard it happening, and it will continue to happen. Again, one more thing that I mentioned earlier, and that is 
Well, actually, there's two more things. One more thing would be this. The ambassador word here that is used is in the present tense. So this indicates that this position as Christ's ambassador is our ongoing and continual duty as long as we are alive. So we will always be an ambassador for Christ. Wherever we go, that's exact. You may, you may be a good one, you may be a bad one, but you are an ambassador for Christ, period. The world will judge Christ based on us. Now, that's a tragedy when that takes place because, you know, we, there are stories individuals use saying, well, you know, um, I met someone so and they were a Christian and they did me wrong. And what we often need to make sure, explain to them is that, well, but that is not Christ and I don't know that individual and maybe they weren't a Christian, maybe they were. But this is what the scriptures say. And so that makes it, it can make it more difficult. But we do have, in a sense, control over ourselves. We need to make sure that we are properly representing Christ. And again, an important note is even though we have this exalted status of being an ambassador for God himself, we have not been invested with the full power of independent action. We deliver the message. We don't create the message. We don't lack any authority to give the message, but we do lack authority to alter that message. And again, that has been a problem within the, the realm of Christianity for a long time. Depending on the mood of the culture of whatever time, you have fine individuals who are trying to alter what the scripture says. Trying to alter what the Bible says to make it, again, more palatable to others, more palatable to society. And we see that kind of compromise taking place today. It's not a new thing. Where there's individuals trying to say that, you know, they're all to what the scripture says and an individual, let's say that they are a homosexual and they say, well, you know, I, I, I want to come to Jesus as I am, which is not wrong, but normally what they mean is I want to come to Jesus and remain as I am. Nobody has that right to do that. And not them. But there'll be some believers who will say that that's okay uh, and they'll make statements that, God, that we're all made in God's image, whether you are straight or gay, and they kind of go on. And I understand to a degree what they're trying to do, but it's, it's wrong. We don't alter the message. Now, we don't go out of our way to point out the differences people have or that kind of thing. We want to get back to the message. And, and the message is what Christ has done for us. Don't get caught up in, in, in overtly trying to change other people. Let God do that. God changes people. He does a pretty good job with that. And, and so we need to make sure that we are just the tools that Jesus uses. We don't want to be uh, the one who is in charge of those things. Again, some things to keep in mind. Number one, an ambassador does not speak to please his audience. He speaks to please the king who sent him. Again, that does not mean that you and I seek to go out to be obnoxious to others and make them hate us. That is, that is not suffering for Jesus. I remember one time I was reading a, a book. It was a, a kind of a, an autobiography of a man who was involved in street preaching, and he did a lot of uh, preaching of that kind on college campuses. And he, in a sense, was kind of bragging about how much he suffered for the Lord in doing that. And then as I began to read the specifics of some of his encounters with people, uh, he wasn't suffering for the Lord. He was suffering because he was being an idiot. Because he would go and he would preach, the message sounded good, and then when he, and he would invite people to ask questions in these open forums, and then when they did, he would call them names. He would put them down. But that's, that's, that's not the way that you handle things. Again, we don't, try to, we don't overlook sin and pretend sin isn't sin, but he was going to the extreme. 
to where, you know, one time a, a lady was asking, of, I believe, the way that the context appeared, she was asking a very serious question. She had been raised in church, and she was living with her boyfriend, and so when she finishes the question, the way he answered, he began with, well, the, the first problem is, is you are, and I won't use the other word he used, you're a prostitute. There you go. Now she's going to hear every word of the gospel. Why, why would he do that? Why would he call her that in front of all of these people? What is the point that distracts from the message and puts all of the emphasis on who? The messenger. It's the wrong way to go about things. He wasn't suffering for the Lord. He was being persecuted for his own foolishness. So again, we don't, we don't overlook sin and we don't, we don't not call sin things that are sinful. That's the way that we handle that. Remember that when Jesus was dealing with the woman who was caught in adultery, you'll notice there's a lot of things he didn't say to her. He didn't say, well, you know what? You are the scum of the earth, but I'm going to love you. He didn't do that. He asked her where her accusers were. And then he said that he did not condemn her either. He did not say she didn't do anything that wasn't worthy of being condemned. He just said that he wasn't condemning her. And then he told her to go what? Sin no more. Well, there's an implication there that she had sinned. He said, don't do that again. And so there's a way to handle these kinds of things. So you are an ambassador. I am an ambassador. The way that we talk to others in many settings, on many things, but including and never excluding the giving of the gospel, we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way that pleases and honors God. We want to be faithful and true to the message he has given us and not trying to appease those that we're speaking to. Again, an ambassador does not speak on his own authority. He doesn't speak his own opinions. Uh, it does not give his own demands because all those things mean very little. We want to get back to the message that God has given us. Again, what we say is what we've been commissioned to say. And we've been given to that, given that in the scriptures. Again, an ambassador is more than a messenger, as we've already said. He is a representative. And the honor and the reputation of his country, or in our case, the honor and the reputation of our Lord are in our hands. And so the, I do believe that there, are, there may be others in our past who have either a positive or a negative view of Christ because of how we've treated them, because how we've spoken to him. I know it's possible. There may be a few in your past who they just don't like you, and so they're exaggerating what you did or didn't do. And, and those things happen. But we're not dealing with all those little minor things. You know, what we're dealing with is, but how have you treated these individuals? When you mistreated them, did you seek their forgiveness? Have you sought to right the wrongs that you've done towards others? Or have you been too prideful to do that? And so here, the reputation of Christ is in our hands. And so that's why it's imperative that we handle uh, our treatment of others and the way that we speak to them uh, in, a, in, a, in, a way, in a way that pleases the Lord. And even though we know that no man is perfect, we then should be quick to seek forgiveness. We want nothing that we do or the way that we say things to detract from the message of Christ. Again, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Said another way, it reads this way, God is sending you his invitation, his, invita his invitation through us. So God seeks to invite others to believe in him through you and me. That's the way God desires to do this. 
God himself who issues his appeal does so through our words. We are, as it were, God's mouthpiece. We speak forth his desire to reconcile sinners from their war with God, a war they cannot win in this life or in the life to come. It says that we're making an appeal. What's interesting when I was studying this is when I look at the word, it's the word parakaleo, which means literally to call alongside or call one alongside, to call someone to yourself, to summon. It's a word that's often used when, when we're trying to, to help an individual, to, to, to do good for them and to help them. Parakaleo does include this idea of giving aid um, or giving help. But what's interesting is, is in the New Testament, the primary sense is we are coming alongside someone to urge them to take action, especially some ethical course of action. So the idea is that we're coming alongside an individual and we are making an appeal to them to believe in Christ. I believe that kind of having that picture in our mind should be helpful. So this is not necessarily where we are on one side of the fence and we're yelling at those on the other side of the fence to be reconciled to God. But the idea is that we're coming alongside of these individuals. We are urging them. We are appealing to them. We, we want to answer their questions. We, we want to love them and care for them and do whatever is necessary on our behalf to enable them to understand the message of Christ and to urge them to believe in Jesus Christ. I'll never forget, I think I've shared with you before that I was doing, uh, just out of disinterest, I was reading how prison and jail ministry began in our country and how basically the penitentiary system began in our, uh, in our country, which is basically all through Christians, and it was the idea of trying to help individuals really, in a sense, come to Christ. I think they lost their way along the way, but, but there's this sketch of an early service that was in a prison. And the way that it worked was in, when the, in, the, in the prison system in the early 1800s, everybody was in isolation. If you were arrested and you were imprisoned, you were put in a, in a one-man cell by yourself, no contact with anyone for several hours a day. You might be allowed outside for 60 minutes, uh, but the idea was that you were to be alone uh, and you were to pray and read your Bible and you know, basically work things out between you and God. And then you'd be allowed out for a, a church service that would normally happen on, on Sunday. And in this one particular drawing, they have all these, there's an open auditorium, and there's all the seats, and all the inmates are there in the seats. And there's a podium, and the, and the, the preacher's behind the podium. And then next to him is a cannon, a literal cannon that you use in war. And behind the cannon is, is the guard holding a lit torch. That means the, it means the cannon has been loaded. So I guess the idea was, Listen, or we light the cannon. So I don't think anyone fell asleep in those services. Uh, I've preached in many prisons, and a few times guys will fall asleep. But we don't, I, I said, you know, maybe we should bring out the cannon. <laughs> but the idea is that's not the idea that he's talking about here when we make this appeal to people to come to Christ. It is the idea of coming alongside of them. I'm sure that if you'd been talking to your, your son or your daughter about believing in Christ, and let's say that, through the course of time, uh, they're going through some difficulty and maybe it's gotten to a point to where it's maybe you feel it's beyond your ability to answer questions or whatever the case may be. And so you ask them if they would like to come talk to me and they would agree. This is what you would not want me to do. They come in my office and I ask them what's going on and then I begin to yell at them and scold them for their sin and then say, you need to believe in Jesus. And then tell you, yep, I've done my job. 
that would not be what you would be hoping I would do. What you would be hoping I would do is that I would what? Come alongside them. Listen to them explain about their life. Answer their questions about life, about the Bible. Explain to them the gospel message. And encourage them to believe in Christ. To, to tell them what the scriptures say. They may not come to Christ at that point. They may come to Christ later. But the, but the methodology that I would use, my approach to them, would, would mean a great deal to you. And you would not be expecting me to do the other. It would be that, to come alongside. That's what we're all called to do. So I trust that you'll never find yourself in a situation where perhaps you have communicated by yelling the gospel at someone or scolding them with the gospel and somehow have patted yourself on the back because you've done your duty. That's not the idea that's presented here. There is an urging. There is a pleading with them. And so there is to be a coming alongside of them. The idea here with this word parakaleo is that we are doing all we can to enable them in this difficult situation to come to Christ. You can't do it for them, but we want to enable them. And that's usually by answering questions, loving them, praying for them. And so the present tense again calls for you and me to continually be making this appeal to those who are not yet reconciled. I came across this statement, which I think has been reworded by John Piper, but it reads this way. Sin is a fundamental relationship. It is not wrongdoing. It is wrong being. It is deliberate and emphatic independence of God. So he's not saying that we don't do sinful things. That's not the point of that sentence. But the idea is to help us to recognize that it's so much more than just wrong things we do. It is who you are. It is you in your being, in your existence. You, there is this deliberate and emphatic independence of God. That's what the word ungodly means in Romans 1 when it says that God is angry about unrighteousness and ungodliness. We are living in a state of rebellion, which is also living in a state of independence from God. I don't want to hear what he has to say. I don't want to submit to what he has to say. I don't want you to tell me what he has to say. I don't want to think about who God is. That is living, in, that is, is living independently of God, and that is sin. So that then means all of us are guilty. When I think back to my childhood, when I was, you know, seven, eight years old, I did not want to listen to my parents. I was not thinking at that moment, I wonder what God thinks about this. But I should have been, because God has something to say about everything to everyone. And so I was seeking to live independent from what God says, and that was viewed in my disobeying my parents, or at least maybe having a bad attitude towards my parents and their authority. And so therefore the sin was there. You might be in your 40s, you might be in your 50s, and it's, ex and it's expressed in similar ways. You just live your life. You just don't think about God. It's just, you know, not really on your thoughts too often, except when something unexpectedly tragic takes place, and we suddenly are, we think about God. And so an individual, that's how we explain how an individual can, in a sense, relatively speaking, be a morally good person and be living in out and out rebellion against God. Because that individual is living in a deliberate, independent way from God. They are emphatic in their independence from God. They don't need him. Therefore, they don't think about him. Again, he says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, 
be ye reconciled. When you look at verse 20 in several translations, many of them are very similar. This one's a little different because we have this phrase here, we pray you in Christ's stead. That's just another way of saying we pray or we implore, we beg, we urge. What is emphasized here is the existence of a need. The individual who is speaking is deeply aware of a personal need. I am deeply aware of your personal need. You are deeply aware of someone's personal need for Christ. And so as an ambassador, you are working both on behalf of Christ and really in the place of Christ. And then he comes to an incredible statement in verse 21. Again, he tells us what we already know to be true. For our sake, he made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. God placed on him our sin and he was punished for our sin. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an odd and striking way to make this statement that we become the righteousness of God. In one commentary it reads this way. When it comes to the phrase, we become or might become the righteousness of God, is a bold restatement of the nature of justification. Not only does the believer receive from God a right standing before him on the basis of faith in Jesus, but here Paul says that in Christ, the believer, in some sense, actually shares the righteousness that characterizes God himself. I believe that that is something that we could think about all day long. I believe that's really profound. I think it should cause us to think very deeply and very differently about who we are as Christians. It should cause us to think differently about being an ambassador for Christ. That in some sense, I share the righteousness that characterizes God himself. How am I living up to that? How are you living up to that? Or did you blow that already this morning when you were getting ready for church or when you were talking to your spouse or maybe getting on the kids because they're moving too slowly, or whatever the case may happen to be. How were we displaying this righteousness? Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 8 says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. In the Old Testament, the, the, it uses the word righteousness. It means a right relationship with God or with the covenant God that led to loving others as oneself and doing good in order to lead others into the same right relationship. But through time, the Jewish interpretation of righteousness was narrowed into acts of just doing good without the vital root of a right relationship with God. We're in the same place today. There are many who believe that they are doing good. Whether they are, are saying they're doing good for themselves or doing good for God, they have replaced the root of their relationship or the relationship they should have with God with just doing good and believe in some sense or have convinced themselves that they're doing enough good to get by. I'm, I'm not sure what they want to get by. If they want to get by the judgment of God, it's not going to work. But we've convinced ourselves of that. At least we want to think that. Herman Kramer says this, Righteousness in the biblical sense is a condition of rightness, the standard of which is God, which is estimated according to the divine standard, which shows itself in behavior, 
conformable to God and has to do above all things with its relation to God and with the walk before him. The righteousness of God, righteousness as it belongs to God and is of value before him. With this righteousness, the gospel comes into the world of nations, which has been wont to measure by a different standard. It is, an absolute, it is absolutely necessary that the sinner should suffer in his own person or in that of a substitute. Jesus became this substitute. There's an uh, excerpt that is in your bulletins by Spurgeon that comes from one of his sermons where he's t- speaking about Christ, our substitute. It's just, I think it's a good read. It'll only take you a couple of minutes. You know, maybe read it after lunch. Just think about the way that he expresses it. And I think you'll find it very beneficial to you, very profitable. Jesus stood virtually in my place and your place, the place of the sinner. He endured in his holy body and his soul the punishment due to him, for he was numbered with the transgressors. The cross was the place in which this sacrifice was offered. For as the blood of the slain lamb was poured out at the foot of the altar, sprinkled upon its horns, and burned in its ever-enduring fire, so Jesus shed his blood upon the cross. He there endured the wrath of God, to the uttermost. He there put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He there offered his holy soul and body, the whole of his pure and sacred humanity, in union with his eternal deity as an expiation for the sins of his people. That is the message that we bring. Another one said this, Thus all our sin was atoned for, expiated, put away, blotted out, and will never more be imputed to us. This is the grand mystery of redeeming love and atoning blood. Here the cross shines forth in all its splendor. Here God and man meet at the sacrifice of the God-man. And here, amid the sufferings and sorrows, the groans and tears, the blood and obedience of God's dear Son in our nature, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. That is the message that we as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ are to carry with us and give to others. Giving this message, explaining this message is the ministry of reconciliation that all of us have. It's one that the more that we think about it, the more that it is described, the more incredible it becomes. And so it is good for us to review this message and to seek to find ways to be able to explain it. It will continue to deepen your gratitude for God himself. It will encourage you to continue to pray for those who are lost, who don't know Christ. Remember, not everyone who says he's a Christian is a Christian. There are those who believe they are Christians because they are Baptist. That doesn't make you a Christian. There are those who believe they are a Christian because they're a Catholic. That doesn't make you a Christian either. There are those who believe they are Christians because they belong to the Methodist church. Being a Methodist and belonging to the church doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is one who's placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, who are trusting in him and only in him to be saved from their sins and to be forgiven and to be guaranteed a place in heaven. That is the message that we bring. It is not church membership. It is not just presuming that anyone who is good is a Christian. It is that and that alone. And that is the message that we must emphasize to those that we meet. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and for the clarity of the message. We pray, Lord, that we would be clear on the message, that we'd be clear ourselves to ensure that we belong to Jesus Christ. 
Father, that we will not rest in the fact that we are in some way a Baptist or a Catholic or whatever the word may be. That we would recognize, Lord, that we are a Christian because we've placed our faith in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Father, we ask that you would solidify this message in our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, you would give to us opportunities and the ability and the wisdom and the strength and the boldness to declare this message to others. But we pray, Lord, that you fill our hearts with love for others so that, Father, we would come alongside them and that we would be willing to patiently explain to them and take whatever time is necessary, whether it's hours in that day or days in a week or weeks in a year or whatever it may happen to be to help others to grasp the importance and the wondrous message of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for those who prayed for us and were patiently coming alongside us to deliver that message to us. Help us, Father, in turn to do so for others. And Father, as always, we ask for those who may be here today who, Father, are not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray, Lord, that you move on their heart and convict them, Lord, of their sin, that they are separated from you. And, Lord, that, that they are lost. And, Lord, it's not that they are lost because we are better than they are and we know better than they do. No, it's because we've placed our faith in Christ. And like them, they can be adopted to the family of God by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you reconciled the world to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you allowed God the Father to place upon you our sins, our trespasses, that we may be forgiven. Father, we'll never be able to thank you enough, but we do thank you with all of our heart, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.